Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Kill Global Coaching and Consulting. Go to KILNGlobalCoaching.com when you're ready to bake success into work and life. Now for the next episode of Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, former president of Anheuser-Busch, former chief operating officer of Schnucks Markets, current chief operating officer of Continental Grains, Dave Peacock. Hey, what you drink? That's a, that's a great lesson for anyone to embrace, especially if you've got a massive organization that the decisions are made locally. It's it's a neighborhood decision. It's that's where the where the allegiance is built. Uh, that takes nothing away from the need to have national advertising and national distribution or global distribution, but the decisions, the purchase decisions, are made locally. There was a senior vice president of marketing that would talk about in all of our meetings uh, would say, yeah, we've got all of these different programs that we're running, but all, all I'm really concerned about is the six feet between the consumer and the shelf, right? The six feet is more important <laughs> than anything that we do from a global standpoint. So the six feet has to be right. Yeah, it's incredible, right? I mean, um, I always have this story where I went in one of our Jamba Juices and it was pretty early for us and they didn't know who I was. And uh, literally was going in as a patron, you know, I don't walk in and like go behind the counter and start telling people what to do. And so um, we had our juice program and there's a woman waiting for her fresh squeezed juice. And that process takes a little bit of time, a couple of minutes. But if you don't know what you're doing, it can take way more. <laughs> and we had a new teammate who wasn't sure what they were doing. And I remember waiting patiently woman was getting a little frustrated, but she got her product left. And I said, you know, in the future, you can just either give that to her or, you know, we had other items that are food items or whatever that are even cheaper, maybe a buck, give her this or that when you're waiting. You know, I'd say it to our store, our clerks, she looks all the time. Everybody's afraid, right? Everybody's a little nervous. And I said, look, we're here. You go back to making friends as our business. We sell seafood. We sell prepared seafood. We will cook seafood for you in our stores for free. And in our North County stores in St. Louis, um, that are tend to be more African-American where seafood is super popular. And here's someone 
willing to do it for you for free. We have people waiting up to an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, and they'll do it and they'll call ahead sometimes. A lot of times people want to wait, you know, but I'm like, look, if we know that in these eight or nine stores is going to happen, let's get some seating. And, and, you know, we, we sell fresh cookies. I mean, these things don't probably cost us 20 cents. Like give them out, give them something, you know, for waiting. I mean, that, that customer, you talk about loyal, they're sitting there without complaint for two hours waiting for fresh sea or for fresh cooked seafood. I still, you know, oh, we can't do that. I'm like, really? Yeah, you can. I'm president of the company. I'm telling you, like, be president of your store. Go do that. So, you know, we, were, we started doing it with holidays when lines get super long. Like, go give out cookies. Something to get people where they just feel like you did a little extra for them. What I hear you talking about is perhaps what Cotter was talking about when he suggested that it's there's more to business than just the spreadsheet. And you have to think beyond what the spreadsheet tells you in order to create a business that's going to endure um, because people will make emotional decisions all the time. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, one of the phrases I used to I used to use all the time was Mike Vance, people buy based on emotion and then they find the facts to justify their decision, right? So once we make that emotional connection, there are hundreds of different reasons why you can justify this is why I did that, when in actuality, I just wanted to, right? I just wanted to. So how do you create that want to? One of the things I wanna get into is, you know, you're at a level where everyone, when they are 21, 22, 23 years old, uh, they usually say, I'm gonna make this move, I'm gonna make that move, and then I'm gonna be CEO of the company, I'm gonna make a million dollars. That's usually how that story ends. Well, you've you've done that, right? You've you've made those moves. You've been the CEO. You've you've made the money and the financial perks that come along with that. What are some things that you didn't appreciate at the beginning of your career? Perhaps trade-offs, perhaps decisions. What are some things that you didn't appreciate that would go into making the journey that you've made? To this day, and maybe it was that stage where I was in life. I, I've told people one of the best jobs I ever had, or maybe the best job I ever had, was senior manager sales promotion. So it was probably my fourth level move up job. Senior manager, nothing crazy. And you know how that is a big company where that is. I had a place in Central West End, which is this area of St. Louis. It's kind of a cool area to live in the city. Um, my wife and I were dating. Again, so it could have been that, you know, hey, we're dating. That, that's, but we've been dating a while. I was pretty happy. Like I had a couple of people reporting to me. I had some responsibility and budget to manage, but it wasn't like overwhelming. And, you know, had some late nights, but not too many and enough money in my pocket to have fun, but young enough where I didn't take it for granted and, had, you know, was able to kind of live pretty free versus when you, when you have kids and more responsibilities. So I don't say that to say, oh, don't strive for the president or CEO job. But I say it to say, as young people are coming up, enjoy those moments. You know, mm -hmm. that, that journey is really special and important. And you're going to be in a role and get frustrated or whatever. But sometimes you just look around and take on, put on a different pair of glasses and say, you know what, this isn't so bad. You know, right now, this is pretty good. And, and not always looking three, four stories up because now at 53 and having had some leadership positions, I was president at Hazard Bush at 39. And then I left and invested and you know was involved in an effort to keep the Rams in St. Louis, which was a whole long story. And then trying to bring soccer to St. Louis and the president of a grocery chain and now what I'm doing now. So it's been leadership positions ever since. It's kind of nice when I think back like, wow, leading a little bit, but not 
having to carry all the responsibility and the risk and stress that comes with it. Well, as a, you'll, you'll be more promotable and attractive to those who are making those decisions if you have an appreciation for the moment you're in. Mm, I love that. I love that. Okay, so you, you are reminding me of a conversation that I just had with one of my first mentors. So if you're listening to this, I'm absolutely going to encourage you to double back and check out the conversation I had with Mr. Joe Cavalier. And one of the things that he and I talked about, and you're reminding me of this, is you know the journey is usually a straight line when you're at the beginning of your career. I'm going to take this position, this position. I'm going to. It's going to be a straight line up. And in reality, we end up taking these side opportunities, these side roles, uh, not necessarily knowing if it's going to connect us to our ultimate journey, but looking back and what I heard you say. It's those side experiences that make you more promotable, that make you more desirable, that gives you the the texture to make some of the decisions that you've got to make today. What are your thoughts about this idea that the route to success is rarely a straight line? And even if it is, it's not as exciting. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's someone once said to me, your, your, your promotability is directly correlated with your willingness to accept risk. Because within an organization, you know, I remember what the two big moves that I made because I was that senior manager in sales promotion for a number of years. And then I'm getting frustrated. Like, oh, yeah, I need to, now I'm married. Now we're having a kid. I need to, we're talking about having a kid. Got to start doing some things. So I started my MBA. And halfway through that, I'm looking around, talking to Coke, looked at housing in Atlanta, looking at Gatorade. And then a job, and I've been in marketing my whole life, in finance opened up. And I went for it and I took it and it was reporting to, to a guy who reported August Bush the third. So I, would, I mean, so the combination of it's finance and it's going to be higher profile, but, you know, be careful. Right. I mean, I was a little nervous, but I remember getting the job and coming home and telling my wife, you know, this is going to change our lives. And it did. It opened up a lot of doors and a lot of opportunity prior to that. And probably would help lead to that because I had a mentor support me for that MBA was this project in Puerto Rico I worked on. It was a promotion that I just poured myself into. Nobody else wanted to work on it. And this VP at the time, I think, noticed my energy for it. He had an energy and appreciation for it. He became my mentor. So mm-hmm. both of those decisions and taking those risks, because this Puerto Rico project was a little risky, the way it was structured, put me in position to where I was a vice, you know, I'd always want to go to brand management. And I came out of this finance job as a vice president of brand management. I was 33, 34, going after something that feels a little risky, a little uneasy, sometimes worth it. Yeah. Wow. You, you talked a little bit about mentors. You know, I'd love to get your thoughts on how important is it to have a mentor and what's the responsibility for developing that mentor relationship? from the mentee's perspective? I guess for me, and I'd say I prefer more advocate versus mentor. Um, I like advocate because a mentor kind of speaks into a person. An advocate can, I believe, do that, but also advocate for that person in certain ways. And that's one thing I try to do with folks um, today that I work with. Sometimes it's entrepreneurs, sometimes it's people within the organization I'm working in now or that were in the organization I just came from. And then even after they leave, I had someone, a very, very close friend of mine who left and I continue to advocate for her. And we have a great relationship beyond 
work, but just as friends. So, and I do believe you got to be open to that. It really is two way. You, I learn from people that I either kind of mentor and or advocate for as much as I, I think I impart upon them. They may have a different opinion, but I'm thinking of a couple. There's a, there's a woman, Dr. Natalie King, who is an entrepreneur in St. Louis, um, who's founding uh, Blue Beauty Brands, and we've become friends. But also just enjoy her company, and I learn a ton from her. She's got a PhD, but I'm helping her on the business side. And then because of her lived experience and things she's done, um, I just learned a ton from her. So I think they're very, very much reciprocal relationships. Yeah, I, I like that. I love the distinction between mentor and advocate, both important, but very different. And the advocate, advocacy is so instrumental to uh, getting you into rooms that you might not ordinarily get into, right? Your name might not ordinarily rise in those rooms without that advocacy. So I, I see the importance of that. Uh, you know, one one of the things I, I found interesting looking at some of your your music preferences because this is this is whiskey, jazz, and leadership. I respect the McKellen. Uh, boy, I do McKellen twenty five year. That's pretty strong. We're gonna give you a pass because this is the first day in your brand new apartment. But musically, Wynton Marcellus. Wow, I didn't expect you to come with Wynton Marcellus as being one of your one of your favorites. Not a big stretch, though. Not a big stretch, but I didn't expect it. But then you're a huge Springsteen fan. Huge. Guy's amazing. And I got my wife for my, my birthday, got us uh, tickets to Broadway, which was like, extremely emotional for me because of, you know, at the time I felt like he's retiring. You know, he was like his last thing and the way he handled and set it up. And I'm emotional. Like, I can't, I mean, I've grown up, I, I saw this guy when I was 16 all the way to now. And, and now he's still doing the show. <laughs> I'm like, years later, I'm like, he's not, he's not retired. But, you know, I, growing up in, when I did in the eighties, he, he, he was, and I, it's been interesting. I listened to his podcast with, with him and Barack Obama. I'm talking and it's just a really amazing to, you know, here's a guy from Hawaii, you know, who lived in Indonesia with his mother with, with from Kansas and a father from Kenya and president of the United States eventually. And then here's, you know, Bruce Springsteen who, you know, this rebel, this guy who is unbelievably defining to a rock era, who is jokes, jokingly says, I live 10 minutes from where I grew up. You know, I'm born to run. I ran 10 minutes away. <laughs> but he's toured the world and he's just, and yet different backgrounds, but it's really a podcast people should listen to. It's really interesting to hear kind of their reflections on life and, and what have you. But he, there's so much depth in what he writes about. And he really is just an amazing writer and performer as well, but he writes stories. His songs are stories. And I just, I love stories. So I think he's, he's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So Bruce Springsteen, he's the dude for you. Yep. I mean, going back to college, high school, all the way to now, I, he, when he's done, that's going to be a sad day for me because he <laughs> continues to pump out just amazing lyric and, and just thoughtful narratives that he kind of weaves into all his songs. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. And then you've got U2, The Stones, and then Public Enemy. So I, I tell you what, Cool Modi, Public Enemy, that whole era was, was my, my thing. I went to a Public Enemy concert when I was 17 years old with a buddy of mine. And I'm telling you, we're the only two white dudes in the whole place. And I'll never forget just standing there. We're on the floor. I mean, we were into it. We waited on you know, Ticketmaster or whatever and got 
16th, 17th row. Incredible. Incredible. I fell in love with rap. It was just emerging in that time frame when I grew up and you know, I was a teenager. And even now, as I fast forward today, I'm a big fan of hip hop. And, and just, I think, again, it goes back to lyric and message. And you know, that form of poetry to me is incredibly powerful. Now, now, that brings me to something that I have always been impressed about relative to you. You seem to be extremely comfortable, regardless of the setting, regardless of the situation, regardless of the group. You project comfort. I don't know if that comfort is real or not, but you you seem to be at ease regardless of the environment. And I'm going to tell you, you seem like the same dude regardless of the environment. Where does that come from? Probably partly how I grew up. I grew up in a pretty diverse background. You know, Webster at the time was not just racially diverse, but very socioeconomically diverse. You know, I had friends that had tennis courts and pools and basketball courts in their backyard all three, <laughs> which was not us. You know, we were kind of more on the lower end of middle class. And then I had buddies I played football with literally had, and I'd go to their house in Rock Hill, two shirts and one pair of pants hanging in their, in, in their closet. And that's it. You know, you go over there and like, he's like, they're like, you hungry. And I'm like, yeah, okay. We got to go somewhere else. We don't have any food. So <laughs> that, that experience of, of spending time with people from both ends, socioeconomic kind of spectrum, and I think growing up in what was, no, we did not have, where I grew up, you know, Latino population, things like that, but just a racially diverse population just made, I just was comfortable. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel any different, no matter kind of who I'm talking to. And it's one of the, the blessings of going back to Schnucks. You know, I grew up, you know, kind of corporate America, like you did with Coke. And going back to retail is a very intimate business. You, you really get to know people in your business. And um, I steal that term from Kat Cole, who's a friend of mine who was running focus brands for a long time, amazing leader in her own right. But um, I mean, I got to know teammates, Harrison Lindsay's a seafood manager, at one of our stores, you know, raising, I think five kids and um, amazing, amazing guy. There's a woman who just lost her husband who's one of our top floral people. I mean, you just get to know these, they're human beings and they're real, just visceral human stories. And they're more human because of they, what they do. They serve, they show up every day. And I think through the pandemic, it made it even more kind of visceral when, when you realize what we all were going through, but what they were doing every day. It just gave me an appreciation where I spent a lot of time getting to know these folks. And um, it was a great, great just career window because I got to kind of tap back into that experience I'd had when I was young. Mm. Wow, it's fantastic. Uh, okay, so I, I want to run this by you. And, and have you help me explain what this is? Because the name of the podcast is Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. And I, I like all three, literally. But there's also a metaphor for me where this all makes absolute sense, but it only makes sense in my head. Whiskey, for me, is about enjoying what you enjoy with the people who enjoy it with you, right? It's it's a very social experience for me. Jazz is about how do you get from where you are to where you want to be, even when there's no sheet music, when things aren't spelled out and you still have to figure out how to get there. And for leadership, it's very personal because I, I can have very few conversations with anyone 
or I'm not bringing up some sort of leadership principle. How does this concept of whiskey jazz leadership fit in your head? Is there a connection or is this just Galen being being gay? No, I mean, I didn't think of it in those terms until you said it, but you're right. I mean, having come from the alcohol beverage industry, we called it a social lubricant. So for us, it was a beer. You think about, you know, after I can't remember his name, the Harvard professor was arrested at his own front porch um, and, and, and Obama asked him over for a beer. You know, it was sort of this this notion of having a beer with someone or having a drink with someone is going to be social. It's going to be typically informal. You you may have champagne and a toast and things like that, but then you're celebrating. So it's still a positive thing. And then if you, if you transition to jazz, I don't know all the ins and outs and intricacies of jazz. I like your description of sort of getting there when you may not know exactly how you're going to get there. Um, which, which then does definitely dovetail in leadership because leadership is often dealing with ambiguity and, and bringing some, I think, some certainty to an ambiguous situation for, for a lot of people. And, uh, and so those two seem very connected to me. Ah, fantastic. So I'm not going crazy. No, I don't think so, <laughs> no, I don't think so at all. And uh, you think about if you're going to listen to jazz, you should be sipping on some whiskey and that whole notion of, Dealing with ambiguity to kind of get to your end goal is leadership, right? I mean, that, that's kind of leadership in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah. So tell me, what, what's next for you? And l- let me frame up what I mean by what's next. You know, Steve Jobs said everything connects when you're looking backwards, right? It's the looking forward part that is kind of hazy and you're not quite sure. But if you were to look forward, what can you anticipate as being next for you, especially as you head off, you're actually in New York, uh, working with this enormous organization with a tremendous legacy, much like the Anheuser-Busch and the Schnucks markets that you've been a part of. What, what are your thoughts about what next might look like? I think the older I've gotten, the less I worry about what's next. Now, I have visions because we're also, because everyone's kind of in their personal life going through stuff, you know, transitioning, whatever I'm trying, you know, we're about to be empty nesters for the first time next year. And part of the, the roots of this decision were the freedom. I've always wanted an urban experience. And my wife has been incredibly supportive of that. And she, I don't think she loves New York, but she's got a sister who lives here. and We got a niece who lives here. And so she'll visit some of the time with me, which is why we have, you know, this apartment. So we've got somewhere to be. You know, you can look out the window in the back. I mean, I'm, I'm getting an, I'm getting an urban experience on steroids now. <laughs> I also get the blessing of going home and having a yard. And you know, yesterday I got I flew out here last night. I mean, I'm dragging yard bags from our backyard where my wife does an amazing job maintaining kind of this garden. And then I literally within three hours I'm in Manhattan. You know, mm-hmm. so that juxtaposition. But I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm in this new role. I, I'm, I love it. I love the people. I love the office. I love the, what we're doing. I love who we work with. I've got a business dinner tonight after the podcast, and, and I'm looking forward to that. Some folks from UK and from Chile. So love the international aspect of it. And I'll do it till I do, until I do something else. I mean, you'd ask me a year ago, would, you, would I be sitting in New York in an apartment working for these guys? I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm serious. I, I, this was not a plan at all. But I knew I'd leave Schnucks after four to six years. Thought, oh, I want to be CEO of a company or I want to do something in St. Louis or something. And then this came up, which is even better. So mm. 
just if you, it's try to keep my mind open because I realize you know I'm, it's not my not my course to, to to lay out all the time. Yeah, that is very very wise and sage advice. I'll tell you what, man. I I, I think we're gonna carry this conversation to the VIP room. So this is about all I'm willing to share for free. So with that, man, what parting advice would you would you offer? for this conversation. This has been absolutely phenomenal to first reconnect with you. And then secondly, to have you share with my listeners all over the world, all the advice, all the wisdom that you've shared tonight. Uh, it's hard, you know, I mean, you had asked earlier on email, what, what leadership kind of principles. I mean, there's, we were studying leadership when I was the Anheuser Bush. So I got to go visit the group is known as SEAL Team 6. It's actually SEAL Team, uh, Navy SEAL Development Group. They're based and became very close friends with the Master Chief there. The credo that I learned from spending time with them is sort of this notion of if, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? That those are the two questions a leader has to ask. And that gets into that kind of taking some risk and, and stepping into the ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, they do it at a level that I can't even comprehend. And then this notion of, and I heard this, and it's such a great comment. It was actually uh, Fred Smith who founded FedEx who said, man, the first day your CEO is last day, you hear the truth. Mm-hmm. He didn't mean it in a negative way. People aren't trying to lie to you. It's just, oh, I don't want to tell him this. It's like he's busy either. This is not important enough for him. Or it, you know, they want, they, it's almost out of respect. All you want are truth tellers. You know, when I went into Schnucks, I was super intentional around all levels of the organization having truth tellers. Like what's really going on? Okay. I, I get, I hear stuff, but what's really going on. And thankfully I've from St. Louis, I've got a lot of folks walk in our stores, <laughs> tell me what they thought we're going on, what's going on as customers. So always kind of seeking that truth, I think is absolutely critical. And then, uh, you know, I'd say right now in this environment, I'm, I'm, I'm just a big believer in we've almost let this pandemic divide us. Mm. And it's unfortunate because, you know, and this isn't getting into hard as party positions or it's just we shouldn't be letting something like this divide us, right? This is when, you know, what made the United States, I think, this very unique and, and the, this, the, the beacon on a hill, whatever they say, I think was during World War II, some of the best of us is where we, we you know, banded together as a country, people sacrificed and, and they, they accomplished something with an external enemy. You know, to me, the pandemic should have been that enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you saw some of it. I mean, I saw our teammates every day. They, they were nervous. They came to work. They put masks on, wore them for eight or nine hours, put in extra overtime when we were short-staffed. I mean, I watched a lot of people do it. And so that's what gives me optimism because while there may be sort of divisiveness on TV or whatever you see, what I saw and lived was actually people kind of coming together, helping each other out. Um, hey, you know, my, my teammate went, you know, went down with a quarantine or with COVID. So now I'm going to work extra shifts. It was incredible. And so um, this notion of kind of coming together amidst adversity, I think, is really important. Hoping we get back to, you know, more kind of open offices and open environments is, you know, I got boosted a couple of days ago. So just as all that unfolds, because I do think people need to connect and be together, not just be on TV like you and I have to be right now. Well, man, I, again, I just really appreciate this time. I appreciate uh, what you represent to uh, not just St. Louis, but to Missouri, to the United States. I also appreciate all of the counsel that you've given me personally and how welcome you made me feel 
uh, as I moved into this area. Um, man, I just really appreciate you. So if you had something, I would say raise your glass and cheers. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guest and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.